episode 368 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we're about to express today do not reflect those of our clients, our firms, our institutions, our families, even our pets. We're going to have a, a slightly different approach today. I, I want to dive deep on a couple of topics as well as cover some of the stories. And so we've got a slightly bigger than usual panel. Mark McCarthy is here. He's often the panelist. He teaches technology, law, and policy at, at Georgetown and is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Nick Weaver, of course, uh, is a favorite. He teaches computer science in uh, Berkeley. Adam Kandub, uh, Adam, is this your second time on or your... Second, so Second. I, I'm no longer a podcast virgin. Okay, that's great. He teaches law at Michigan State, or as those of us from Michigan used to call it, MUU, and is a senior fellow at the Center for Renewing America, or is it Remuing America? All right, Adam, that's the last joke I'll make about Michigan State. <laughs> I I, you should. Hey, look, I went to Edsel Ford High School. I think that's, that speaks for itself. Hey, uh, and I teach at Berserkly. <laughs> Fair enough. And finally, uh, Michael Weiner, uh, who's my partner and comes on the show whenever we have some hard antitrust problems to talk about. Uh, Michael, great to have you. Great to be here. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program. What we're going to do first, I think, is talk about the antitrust bills that made a lot of headlines and are still a little hard to unpack. They spent all week at the Judiciary Committee of the House, which pulled an all-nighter trying to get them out uh, and finally did. There are actually, I guess, six of these bill bills kicking around, uh, and uh, a couple of them I thought we could probably dispense with pretty quickly. One of them raises filing fees and the money goes to the FTC and the Justice Department and Antitrust Division to give them more resources. Okay, fine. That bill's already been passed by the Senate as part of their work on what used to be the Endless Frontier Act. So that's probably going to happen. And uh, it's uh, the substantive impact is uncertain, although if you're going to go up against any of these big companies, you're going to need a lot of federal funding. And the other one uh, is uh, something that allows uh, state attorneys general when they file antitrust cases to uh, forum shop without any inconvenience from the defendant. The AGs pick the place where they want to bring the lawsuit. And as far as I can tell, that sticks and all the other rules about uh, what's a forum, a, a convenient forum are waived. Uh, Michael, am I about right on those? Yeah. I mean, it, it's worth pointing out uh, the filing fee bill. If you have a big deal, $5 billion or more, your filing fee is no longer $280,000. It's two and a quarter million, but that's not going to chill any big deals. I mean, it, it's a significant increase. It does give the agency some more money to, uh, to enforce with. But yeah. Okay. Now, next come four pretty substantive bills, some of them very substantive. And what I wanted to unpack first, maybe Mark, you can help with this. There are two bills that regulate platforms on the theory that they have conflicts of interest when they offer products and services of their own and also serve as a platform for other people to sell services or products. And if I read it right, one bill says the solution for this is to allow the government to break up the, the company. And the other 
says you can impose regulations that force the company not to engage in favoritism. How close did I get on those two? That's pretty close. Uh, the one fix is a series of non-discrimination rules. Uh, and, and the other fix, as you say, is, is some kind of separations requirement or limitations on lines of business. Let me start with the non-discrimination bill first. It, it, it forbids the platform operators from engaging in conduct that advantages its own stuff or disadvantages competing, and it forbids discrimination among similarly situated business users. It's extraordinarily broad language and irrational on its face, but it provides for an affirmative defense with clear and convincing evidence if the platform could show its conduct is not anti-competitive, and the same defense is available if they can show that their conduct is needed to protect uh, user privacy. Now, there's an additional set of non-discrimination provisions, one of which might require uh, a company like Apple to allow sideloading of its apps to its mobile phone, which it doesn't allow now. And uh, Apple has said that this is just a recipe for degrading user privacy and security. But the key thing is what you said, which is that it allows the platforms to be players on their own platform, but seeks to regulate the conflict of interest. So a lot depends on how these provisions are interpreted and enforced. And of course, the bill gives substantial enforcement role to the FTC, whose new chair is Lena Khan. Lena Khan. Yes. One of the leading neo-Brandeisian reform leaders. She was also a staffer who worked on the House competition report that was the predicate for many of these bills. It also creates a digital markets bureau in the FTC to do some of the enforcing. So that's the non-discrimination bill. And as you say, a second bill is called the Ending Platforms Monopoly Bill. That calls for structural separation or line of business restrictions. And that would restrict the ability of platforms to participate on their own platform. One thing, it, it seems to mean that a company like Amazon could not sell its private label products on its marketplace. But I think it means more than that as well. I think it might mean that Amazon could not run its own vendor program on its marketplace. That's where it buys at wholesale and sells at retail. It, it might uh, be allowed to run a vendor program through a separate website, but not on the marketplace where it operates. So it's kind of parallel to those of you know this stuff, to the structural separation requirements that the FCC put in place back in the 1980s to regulate telephone company participation in the computer industry. But it could also mean something even stronger. It could mean a line of business restriction. And it, under that interpretation, Amazon might have to choose between operating a store and operating a marketplace. If it chose to operate this vendor program, it couldn't be a marketplace for third-party merchants and vice versa. If it wanted to operate a marketplace, it could not operate a store, not even on a completely different website. And here, the historical model is the line of business restrictions on the Bell operating companies after the AT and tea breakup in the, in the... Let me just stop. The, the, pretty sweeping. Uh, and you can think of a hundred ways it could be a, misapplied or cause more problems than it's worth. The response, I assume, of the authors is, don't worry, we're aiming at the biggest 10 tech companies in the world, and those are the only people who will be subject to these rules. Is that right? That's that's one answer. And, and I mean, there, it is pretty big companies. They have to have... 50 million active U.S. users per month or 100,000 active uh, monthly U.S. business users. And it's got to have sales or market cap greater than $600 billion. So it really does restrict it to the biggest 
companies. But even if you restrict it to the biggest companies, some of those draconian uh, restrictions could really not be all that favorable to either consumers or to, or to merchants. Now, I, I actually thought the anti-monopoly bill, the, the separations bill, would clarify which one of its possibilities it really means, but it didn't. It remains unclear, and I'm beginning to suspect that this is perhaps deliberate. It gives the uh, FTC lots of regulatory tools to address unfair conduct and doesn't restrict them in its choice of these tools. But again, once a lot depends on implementation and enforcement. The traditional way to think about this would be to start with the non-discrimination requirements and then move on to separations and then even line of business restrictions as increasingly harsh measures if, if the, the less harsh measures don't deter unfair conduct. And it may be that's the way the FTC will. And it's possible that the, these two bills could end up jammed together with exactly that approach, right? We're going to regulate you. If we decide the regulating isn't working, we're going to break off your, your separate uh, lines of business. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's one other bill I want to mention, which is the access bill, which is at a different problem. Uh, there, the problem is there, there aren't really alternatives to the dominant platforms. So it's not aiming to protect business users on the platform, it says, we want alternatives. And, and there, the mechanism is a, a set of rules imposing data portability and interoperability. The idea is to let users take their information with them to another provider, and also, under interoperability, to allow messages or posts originating on one platform to appear to users on the other platform. And it might also allow merchants to simultaneously list their stuff on several competing e-commerce platforms. And the models here are also in the telecommunications world. They're number portability and the technical interconnection arrangements that were set up and supervised by the FCC for telephone companies. And once again, it requires a ton of interpretation by a regulatory agency. In this case, it'll be the FTC. The final thought I've got is that these aren't the only bills moving through Congress that reign in tech. There are content moderation bills, there are privacy bills, and, and there, there are tensions and synergies between those policy areas, and there's nothing in any of the bills that really requires harmonization. Uh, there, there could be a, a chance of, of serious conflict between these competing goals. Well, but they I, have I, to pass first. To pass first. But, but in order to anticipate those conflicts, there should be some requirement that the agency consider the other policy areas when it's taking action in any one of them. This is so something. I thought I, I thought I saw that the data portability provision was subjected to an amendment that said, but of course you have to get the consent of the consumers before you can move the data. And since the consent will be provided by the company that doesn't want to move the data, asking its customers whether they really want to have their privacy uh, raped and pillaged by somebody else, the number of people who will say yes to that is pretty low. So I wondered if this data portability thing isn't already dead as a practical matter. Yeah, it, the, 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 it's affirmative user consent, and many of the privacy groups have lobbied strongly for that. But of course, that, that's only one element of the difficulty, because uh, I might want to take all my information with me, but my information involves other people on my platform. What about their consent? Do they all have to consent as well? And if they don't, then how do you move your network of people from Facebook to Parler or Gab? 
Well, so given that a lot of these privacy groups are basically funded by industry, and so they are carrying industry water when they kill these bills. They believe in it, I'm sure, but the industry is starting a thousand fires about what's wrong with these bills, uh, hoping that a few of them will burn out of control for, for Congress. Uh, and nevertheless, uh, I think privacy is really in tension with competition policy, and some something has to be done to allow the regulators to balance those conflicting policy goals. And the, the legislation doesn't really call for that in, in any overall way. It does in the particular case of data portability, but not more generally. So the last bill that we ought to cover uh, is what I think of as the no more big tech merger bill, uh, kind of saying if one of these big companies wants to acquire even a pretty small company, the presumption is that it's anti-competitive. Michael, I, that sounds to me like we're saying we're going to lock the barn door now that the horse is out in the... Well, maybe, but there are probably lots of more horses in, inside the barn and who knows where they're going to come from. But basically, you, you've got the bill right. No more big tech, no more acquisitions by of anybody by a covered platform company. And by the way, there are, are 11 companies that have a market cap of $600 billion or more. Except if the company can prove by clear and convincing evidence that the deal is not a problem. So it flips the burden of proof to the company rather than to the agency. It excludes things that are not subject to Hart-Scott-Rodino because of exemptions, not because they're smaller than Hart-Scott-Rodino size thresholds. But yeah, it flips the burden of proof. Okay. So but by I, the way, I, yep. No, so I just wanted to point out that in addition to the FTC having the right to enforce the anti-discrimination bill and the platform monopolies bill, it's wide open. DOJ, state AGs, private plaintiffs have a right of action. This is going to be uh, great for lawyers. Oh, okay. Well, then I'm, I, I, I withdraw my objections. So the politics of this are really interesting, too, because there are East uh, Republicans making common cause with very progressive Democrats. And at the same time, there are California Democrats making common cause with Jim Jordan, who has been complaining that the bill doesn't hit Microsoft and was written, he says, to exclude Microsoft, and that it doesn't do anything about uh, the principal objection that conservatives have to the to big tech, which is their suppression of conservative speech. He dragged me into it, I will say. My, my LinkedIn experience getting threatened with a ban by LinkedIn for exposing Silicon Valley hypocrisy on the election rigging front made a brief appearance in his letter to Microsoft saying, hey, why did you do that? And can't you explain your moderation decisions? I don't think they've done anything about that. But he is using those arguments to try to say conservatives are being sold a bill of goods here, that this is going to be, this is going to end up in a whole bunch of regulation, and then Democrats are going to seize the regulatory reins, and they're going to ask for more suppression of conservative speech, not less. I think he's not completely wrong about that. I don't see a lot of value for people who think that there's a speech problem in Silicon Valley, which you could have solved with antitrust remedies. You could have said, we just need more speech and more diversity in speech. Uh, and we're going to, data portability and interoperability might have enabled more competition over speech platforms. But with the privacy issue, I think that falls. And most of these other things are not going to actually produce diversity in the social media platforms. Hey, Bing has, or Microsoft has a market cap above 600 billion. I think, I was looking for some common score numbers this morning, but I think Bing, thanks to the Microsoft platforms, does have 
50 million U.S. MAUs. So I don't know why he's saying that it doesn't apply. Yeah, maybe he maybe he's just wrong and wanted to be able to make the argument anyway. Yeah. Okay. A last question, and it's a jump ball. What does this mean for Chinese competition? I mean, are we going to essentially shoot down a bunch of American companies we hate and have the Chinese sweep in and pick up the the business? It's a, it's an argument that's being made mostly by the companies who are adversely affected by the by the proposals, and, and I don't think there's much to it. Uh, I suppose a bad implementation could hobble companies that are doing good work, but just look at what China itself is doing. They're they're going after their own tech giants in ways that our antitrust people only wish they had the authority to use. So yeah, I think this, but that would yeah. just make them more responsive when the Chinese government said, "Hey, there's a there's a breakup underway in Washington. Go over and buy one." Up. Yeah, well, I, there are plenty of ways to keep control over that without having to stop these antitrust bills. Right, and it does show the perhaps the wisdom of President Trump's initiative to keep WeChat and TikTok out of the United States, and perhaps if we could go back to that. Okay, so Nick, uh, every 10 years, I think it says in the FBI's charter that every 10 years they have to arrest a Chinese scientist and then have their wrists slapped for not having made the case properly. And 2021 has come around and it looks as though they are in the process of getting their wrists. Because they did a awful job. So in investigating a Chinese faculty member, at the University of Tennessee, who does good, solid research, the FBI tried to prove he was basically a spy and failed completely, but at the same time did things like tell the administration that he was a spy and other things like that. And in the end, they ended up charging him with a checkbox violation, that he had a summer position under $10,000 a year with a university. And according to him, the university says that's not a conflict of interest. Don't worry about it. So he didn't check the checkbox on a couple of grant applications. And that's what they tried to prosecute him for. And the case just turned into a cluster because the best witness for the defense was the lead FBI agent who on the stand admitted to lying to the administration and basically trying to conduct a spy hunt for a spy that didn't exist. And the defense was very e e able to present that, A, the professor never met the mens rea requirement because he didn't believe it was a conflict of interest and the university policies didn't say it was a conflict of interest, at least enough for a hung jury. And plus, the FBI was just out of control nuts. And there was like an interview with one of the jurors who came in very, very pro-government and was just, this is just ridiculous. That, that interview was by Mara Vistendahl, who's been on the program. She's written a book about FBI bias in their investigation of Chinese scientists. She's pretty convinced of that. But this does look bad. It was only a, a hung jury. The FBI did get some votes, but I think the body politic, the politics of the Democratic Party make it easy for people to say, well, this is just the FBI engaged in biased investigation, and they're going to 
they're going to have a inspector general investigation. It's going to be ugly. And I don't see how the FBI is going to be happy about this when they're done. And they shouldn't be because they could have handled this in a much better fashion. All right. Okay, let's jump to section 230, where I also want to do a deepish dive because we've got three cases which are not quite the full-throated defense of Section 230 that we've come to expect from the judiciary, although I think they mostly end well for Silicon Valley. And Adam, I think you were part of the briefing for the Texas case, weren't you? That's right. I was an amicus for some nonprofit groups interested in, in um, combating online crime and sex trafficking. So that was that, the, the case there was a state civil case charging Facebook with sex trafficking. It should have been pretty easy for some of these things because there's an express exemption from Section 230 now for sex trafficking cases. So that part, I assume, was the part where it was easy for the a case to go forward. Actually, I'll take a, a slightly different take on that. So the statutory exemption, the SESTA-FOSTA bill, was really quite, was arguably on its face written quite narrowly and only involving federal civil actions on for sex trafficking based upon a criminal provision. But the Texas court read that amendment to include or allow civil actions for sex trafficking that were state, so state civil actions. And that was somewhat of an unusual reading, I, I, I thought. I mean, I welcomed it, of course, but it was, it was not a straightforward reading of the statute. Yeah, well, this this the statute. I, I I reading through these, I finally kind of figured out why everybody relies on the first half of Section two hundred and thirty in these cases, because the courts have basically said, being told you cannot be held liable as a publisher means that if you do anything that a publisher does, you can't be sued for it, uh, as long as it involves somebody else's words or postings or activities online. I, I think that is a remarkably broad interpretation of something that was written originally to say, essentially, you can't be held liable as a publisher for libel. And so, but once you've said, if you're act, if you're doing something that looks like publishing, you're immune. You could even say, well, if the argument is you didn't watch what was being said, the trafficking that was happening under your nose, you say, well, that sounds like I was just publishing it. And if they were sex trafficking, that's fine. That's on them. But you can't hold me liable because I was just publishing it. So that's the argument that that was made and that the court rejected in this context, mostly if I remember right, because they said, uh, well, come on, we think Congress was interpreting uh, the scope of the publisher exemption. And uh, if they didn't think it applied to state, to federal civil cases, we don't see why it should apply to state civil cases. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's certainly correct. The expansion of Section 230 from 230C1, which is all about the liability of third parties, it's, it's what third parties say or speak. And that has been transformed, I think, largely from a misappropriation of a quotation from Zoran to, as you say, Anything that involves the third party, the third party speech, even if it's even if it's not really spoken by the platform. So, in other words, so rather than saying, "Look, the platform is not liable for users libelous or libelous statements or criminal threats," they're saying, "Well, 
If a platform content moderates, that is a publisher function, so therefore the platform has complete protection. And it's a point that Justice Thomas really you know, called out in the malware bite statement of last year. He said, this is absurd. It's really, this doesn't make sense. It's not what the statute's about. And I think the, the Texas Supreme Court, although it eventually it did not it did not accept Thomas's more narrow reading of Section 230. It essentially said, look, we kind of like it better. It's just, unfortunately, that there was all this precedent and they actually said, and we're afraid of disrupting the business model of Facebook. <laughs> it's like, okay. Oh, well, yeah, because they're, they're just teetering on the brink of bankruptcy. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, so Gonzalez against Google is terrorist assistance uh, a lawsuit which more or less follows the standard uh, interpretation that you just gave with a couple of judges in the Ninth Circuit of all places uh, saying, I'd really like to get off this bus, but I'm not sure I know how. Right, exactly. And interestingly, Gonzalez went off on Section 230F, which is unusual for these cases to do that. And in Section 232F is the developer exception, which very few courts have relied upon. And what it says is that, look, you don't have this immunity, this platform immunity, if you are a publisher or developer of content, if you, in sole or in part. So in other words, Google is liable for its own statements, but also for the degree to which it helps develop statements. So the question in Gonzalez is, well, when Google suggests certain sites to visit or has rankings of websites or applies its algorithms to promote certain content or not, is it a content provider in part? And the court said no. And Good God. Good God. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And the argument was that, look, if we apply neutral algorithms, then it, we being Google, if Google were to apply what, what it calls neutral algorithms, it's not really a developer of content, which is an interesting position because on the other side, where they always say, well, there's no such thing as a neutral al algorithm. We can't be content neutral in providing search. So once again, it's this wonderful tells I win, heads I win, tells you lose sort of thing. I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that, that the precedent won't stand, but you know, it does for the second cir circuit did the same thing in, in the Facebook v. Force case. So, so the one case that's going in the other direction that actually went in the other direction, as opposed to uh, kind of whining as they joined the rest of the judiciary is this lemon against snap which is the snapchat speed filter case can you give us some sense about what that was about and why it went different went in a different direction well so i think so so apparently there's an app i'm not aware of this i asked my 18 year old son and luckily he's not aware of it either but it, it's it allows you to sort of record your speed doing certain routes. And I know that friends of mine, when we cycle, there are apps that say, oh, you took this route at a certain time and there's competition, which is nice when 40 and 50 year old guys are doing it on bicycles, but not so nice when you know, 18 and 19 year olds are doing it in cars. And so unfortunately there was a fatality. There was an accident using this, this device, this app, and the parents sued on product liability. And they survived Section 230 ground, uh, they survived Section 230. Getting back to your original point still, it was because the court said, look, yes, there is this app and it is publishing user data, but that's not what Section 230C1 is about. Section 230C1 is when a, a platform, you know, 
speaks or publishes third-party content. It's not doing that. What the claim in this in the suit was that they designed a faulty app, is, and, and the elements of that claim have nothing to do with publishing or speaking third-party content. So it actually came to, I think, the right interpretation of Section 230, and what I think is interesting in the sort of like the pro forma recitation of the applicable test for Section 230C1 immunity, it actually changed it a little bit and said, no, it's only speaking and publishing in the context of an, a state cause of action. So it sort of recognized that, look, Section C1 is, doesn't cover everything to do with publishing and speaking. It's only when publishing and speaking are elements of cause of action for which, you know, section. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? Because the being a publisher is only occasionally an element of a state tort action. And so this would open up a lot of tort liability, wouldn't it? Well, right. But I think it would return section 230 to where it should be, which is primarily, as you point out, defamation and a defamation, criminal threat, causes of action. That's what Congress was really thinking about. When when they want liability for content moderation, they should go to C2, which has a very different regime in which courts tend to ignore because the platforms very wisely and cleverly and competently have built up a much better set of precedents for C2. I think you're quite right. I'm a C2 fan. Uh, and my argument about what's wrong with C1 is in part that it makes C2 surplusage because everything you do under C2 is related to publishing. And therefore, if the interpretation of C2 that has swept the judiciary is correct, Congress didn't need to adopt it. And I think that's wrong. And when this goes to the Supreme Court, and it will, I think a lot of these arguments are going to get a lot more consideration than they have gotten. In, in a bunch of courts that were swept up with loving what technology could do for us 15 years ago and who are now feeling, well, I already said that, that they have this enormous subsidy. I, it would be unfair for me to start trimming it back, but it's going to happen. And I think this idea of saying you're not a publisher, you're a seller of a flawed product is a good start on getting at that. Nick, do you want to add this was also a tactic tried against Grindr, didn't succeed, and it's currently, there's some product liability cases in California, etc., where Amazon is claiming that they're just the third-party middleman. It's not our fault these batteries explode. We'll yeah, see if they they're, succeed they're making, in that. They're making a different argument. They're not so much 230 as saying, it's we're not the manufacturer. We didn't make it. And what the courts have mostly been doing, and there's a Pennsylvania case and a couple of others, is to say, come on, you are the... <laughs> First, you're the deepest pocket in sight, I, I, and you played such an important role in it getting into the consumer's hand that we're going to hold you to the manufacturer's liability. I think those cases, yeah, that's the direction in which the law is going. I, don't, I think Amazon's fighting a rear guard action in those cases. Yeah, I mean, they lost a couple of court cases in California on that. And there was a California bill that would, would make them liable, which they withdrew opposition to, provided that the bill applied to everybody, not just... Yeah. Okay, let's do two or three quick stories and close up. Nick, uh, there are criminal cases now pending against several French executives for torture because of the spy, the, it, basically the deep packet inspection equipment they sold to Gaddafi's Libya and Sisi's Egypt. What's interesting about this case? First of all, that it happened at all. So the company in question, Emesis slash Nexa, 
they changed their name through, basically sold private label X-Keyscore, bulk surveillance tools that you'd install on the national border and really just spy on everybody in bulk and then target who you want. And they always claim to be in what we derisively call the Werner von Braun School of Rocketry. We sell to governments. What they do is legal. We don't care. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. And this was a company that was a bit lower under the radar because it's so with the spyware vendors, they'd get trapped by colleagues and outed and the like. But uh, this vendor was in many ways more pernicious because this was really effective pre-Snowden. So the, what's, and, what's different here is instead of hacking the, the, the targets of the government, they actually could simply sit on the network and take all the, their packets before they were... In yeah, or, well, this was in the days pre-Snowden when most of the web traffic wasn't encrypted at all. And it wasn't really take the packets of the target. It was take the packets of everybody, bulk surveil everybody, and then look at the results. And so this is much harder to detect and much more pernicious in many ways because it's truly attacking everybody. So this is a harder, um, ca this is a harder case than it sounds because, of course, there are perfectly legitimate reasons to do that. And even in Libya, there are criminals who need to be caught. French government could have stopped these sales. Apparently they knew about at least some of them and didn't. And then I expect the the French to say, how do you know we were, it was our technology that was responsible for your torture. That one, I think they're, that one, the company is looking a little uh, bit in trouble. Yes. Both of those are going to be defenses that may actually work because part of the problem with bulk surveillance is it's really hard to prove that was the actionable item short of some memos. But they might have that given that the Gaddafi regime no longer exists and a lot of their secrets are presumably spilled. I've, I've been involved in some of these cases and one of the, this, the question of how can you connect my technology to this act of torture is always a, a, an issue. It looked to me from the stories as though the dissidents, first they're still alive, uh, and they were confronted with statements they had made on the internet which certainly suggests that they were intercepted and we'll have to see how the uh, how the defense plays out there okay canada they it's a frustrating country and and one of the dumbest things that canada insisted on for years was canadian content on in films and tv so you kind of had a little affirmative action quota program for Canadian content. And all of that went away with the internet. It was a, a grand thing. And apparently it's back. Mark, is it really the case that they're going to try to make the entire internet meet these uh, uh, quotas for Canadian content? Yeah, but in an interesting way. I mean, they say to themselves, well, these content requirements apply to traditional media like broadcasting. Why not to tech companies providing streaming services? Yeah. And the EU updated its local content rules, too. So Canada's moving in that direction. Now, it still needs to go through the Canadian Senate, but it's not done. The, the, the interesting thing about this is that the way they apply this local content requirement is through a requirement for discoverability of Canadian. 
So it regulates the algorithms that amplify or downgrade video content on the platforms. Oh my like God! YouTube. Okay, so it has to. There's, there, there really is a hidden subsidy for Canadian content. You, you say I want a funny a, a movie, and at least one of the front page films has to be from. And and, and it, it, the requirement is to make this stuff visible. So it, it may be. Canadian content is there, but it's so low down on the popularity scheme that no one ever finds it. This right, is right. And, and we can't have that. We can't have people saying, this just isn't funny. Uh, uh, the Canadians are going to say, I don't care if it's funny or not. You're going to have to watch it. Uh, oh, it's sad. It's very sad. Uh, they've also begun uh, to make hate speech a crime, at least yeah. before they've actually defined hate speech. But I'm sure it's going to mean Republicans. Uh, well, well, it, it may be, but not by intent. Oh, I mean, I'm they, sure. I, and people from Alberta who are... They define hate speech in the proposal. It's okay. communication that expresses vilification or detestation of an individual or group on a prohibited basis. So vilification or detestation... But if the speech simply expresses dislike or disdain, that's okay. Oh, okay. So it's a it's basically ca the Canadians defining what is good manners and bad manners on the. It's intended to reflect some Canadian court cases, so it, it's not something they've invented out of whole cloth. By the way, it, it applies to individual speakers, so, and their fines of sixteen thousand for the first offense and fifty thousand for the second, but it doesn't apply to social media companies. And are it's they an going to sue Americans whose speech is viewable in Canada? I don't know about extraterritoriality. I mean, let, let them try to enforce that. I well, suppose. it'll be it won't be extraterritorial. They'll say that you sent this to the internet, and the internet is available in Canada, so you sent it to Canada. It'd be interesting. I yeah. So there's no particular requirement that it be aimed at Canada or Canadians. Not not that I was able to see. All right. Okay. And finally, we we would be remiss if we did not acknowledge the demise of the Hunter Thompson of cybersecurity, John McAfee. Who Killed himself in a Spanish, well, maybe killed himself in a Spanish prison, Nick. I think we just must remember a few things. That his whale fornication allegations are not proven, even though he did tweet about it. He was being extradited for basically never paying taxes. And this represents his last great hack, depriving us of two things. Firstly, he tried to convince all his followers that he would never commit suicide, so this is going to spawn tons of conspiracy theory. And also he was facing civil charges for uh, securities fraud violation for his cryptocurrency promotion, and included in that complaint was the observation that he tweeted out that he would eat his D star on national television if Bitcoin wasn't above a certain price by the end of 2000 so the or 2020. Wait, wait, the SEC lawyers actually put that in and said that was part of the, the false representations that he made? Yep, because he <laughs> failed to eat. Excellent. Well, that's I. Uh, that's great. A loathsome human being. I mean, he almost certainly responded to the poisoning of his dogs by having his neighbor killed. So I, I, I can't say I miss him. But he is. He was a showman and a flake, and it's an end of an era in cybersecurity that he's gone. His company or the end of an error. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. All right. Thanks, Mark, Nick, Mike, Michael, uh, Adam. Uh, thanks to all of you for joining in 
I want to ask our uh, audience to uh, send questions, comments, and feedback to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Leave us a rating. If you leave a question in the rating, uh, we will answer it on uh, the show. And if you write something entertaining, we'll absolutely read it. Thank you also to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 368 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson.